Let's see the barrel. No, my father is a fearless to the son of our father. Who art in
2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2. What? Okay, good. You're there. You want to read it for us? Which verse? Verse 1 and 2. Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace which is in Christ Jesus. And the things which thou hast heard of me by many witnesses, the same command to faithful men, who shall be fit to teach others also. Okay, so how many generations do we have here? This is St. Paul speaking. You then, my son, speaking to who? Timothy. Timothy. So that's one generation, right? Okay, fine. Well, you would say, all right. Well, it's his son. I mean, all right, fine, whatever. There's St. Paul. He's handing it on to Timothy, St. Timothy. Okay. Who is supposed to hand it on to faithful men. To faithful men who do what? Well, teach others. Teach others. So we've got now four, what I would call four generations, okay? This idea of succession, handing on what you had received, it was not to die with them, but it was to be handed on. Okay? And notice how much care he has. I am handing this on to you. I want you to hand this thing. Don't add to it. Hand what I'm giving on to faithful men. Okay, not just to anyone, but to faithful men who can teach. Okay? That transmission, that gift of what was revealed to the apostles is handed on in two ways. What are those two ways? Remind me. Scripture and tradition. Right. Scripture and tradition. And we look. This is the last thing we'll look at that we looked at last time. And that is 2 Thessalonians. Okay? Just keep going backwards. One more epistle there. 2 Thessalonians. It's right there. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. Second Thessalonians chapter two verse fifteen. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you have learned, whether by word or by our own epistle. Okay, so what's he making a distinction between? By word, okay, that which is handed on orally, and by mouth or by letter. I'm sorry, by mouth or by letter, and then the letter is the epistle, right? And so that which is written down for you, or that which has been spoken to you. Take these two things, and what do you do with them? Stand firm and hold fast to them, to these traditions. Notice, he's saying, he's identifying both the letter and the oral, okay, that which is spoken, as tradition. Okay, because tradition is simply that which is handed on. There's a check here for you, Mark. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught by us, either by word of mouth or by letter. So if anyone ever says to you that tradition is condemned in the scriptures, there's other parts that talk about the traditions of men. But there's also proper tradition, that which is handed on. And here it is, St. Paul saying, hold fast to it. Okay, both orally and written. Okay? You've heard, we're going to do a couple of apologetic topics very quickly tonight, and you've heard, the Bible alone is your sole authority, as, as many Protestants would say. The Bible alone is our sole authority. The problem with that, there's a couple of problems with that, we don't need to get into it too deeply, but that there's nowhere in the Bible that tells you that the Bible alone is your sole authority. Okay, so it's a self-refuting doctrine. If I'm going to use the Bible alone as my authority, and the Bible doesn't tell me the Bible is my authority, I've got a problem. I'm then holding fast to a tradition, which is a tradition of men and not a tradition of God, but by their own rules. Okay? Further, turn to 3 John. Now, 3 John is right before the book of Revelation. It's a very small little epistle. Okay, well, it's not just before, a little epistle of Jude. It's one of those really tiny, tiny epistles right towards the end. Third letter of John. They deal with, with oral tradition.
tradition and written tradition versus the idea of sola scriptura is really, in the end, a natural thing. If I want to communicate something really important to you, how am I going to do it? You would want, yeah, well, it was the very best thing to sit back and write a letter from a thousand miles away or to go to the person and communicate it to them. It's natural, right? And there's very, a lot of times when we're talking about things about the faith, especially when we're in arguments with our Protestant brethren or in apologetic arguments, it's good to just simply say, what is my natural experience in this regard? How does man naturally act? Because God has made us in a certain way. And sometimes we look at our nature and kind of follow that and say, does this make sense according to our nature? Okay? And the third letter of John, which is what we looked at last time when I, when I said I didn't have the right quote. Well, I did have the right quote. And it was right there, verse 13. Third letter of John, verse 15. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk together face to face. Okay? So he's actually withholding things he wants to tell them. He's not writing everything down because he's planning on going talking to them face to face, which is the very best way to communicate. Okay? So these two ways of handing on, both orally and through written scripture. That's redundant. Okay, open your catechisms to paragraph 80. We're going to read paragraph 80 through 82. Go ahead, Jennifer. Paragraph 80 through 82. In sacred tradition and sacred scripture, then, are bound closer yeah. together and communicate one with the other. Now, what are they talking about, about the sacred tradition versus sacred scripture? I made this distinction before for you. Oftentimes, we, we talk about it, the tradition which gives way to scripture and oral tradition. So, really, in theological terms, you got to be careful. Normally, when you're just talking, Normally, this is the, the, you know, when you're just going for it and talking about the topic, it's scripture and tradition. Although, really, we can talk about scripture as a part of tradition, that which is handed on. But here, our list being just talking about oral tradition. Okay, so go ahead. For both of them. No, let's start over. Start the sense of. Sacred tradition and sacred scripture, then, are bound closely together and communicate one with the other. For both of them, flowing out of the same divine wellspring, come together in some fashion to form one thing and move towards the same goal. Each of them makes present and fruitful in the church the mystery of Christ. Christ, who promised to remain with him with his, always, with his own, always to the close of the age. Sacred scripture is the speech of God as it is put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit. And holy tradition transmits in, 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 in its entirety the word of God which has been entrusted to the apostles by Christ the Lord and the Holy Spirit. It transmits it to the successors of the apostles so that, enlightened by the spirit of truth, they may faithfully preserve, expound, and spread abroad by their preaching. As a result of the church, to whom the transmission and interpretation of revelation is entrusted, does not derive her certainty about revealed truth from the Holy Scriptures alone. Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with mutual sentiments of devotion and reverence. Okay. This... Um, collection, if you will, that which has been handed on is called the deposit of faith. You've heard this term before. The deposit of faith. That which is given from Christ to the apostles, okay, either given explicitly by the mouth of Christ to the apostles, or um, made, made explicit through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Okay? This deposit of faith is sealed with the death of the last apostle. There is nothing to be added to revelation until the second coming of our Lord. There's nothing that will add to this deposit of faith. There's nothing that the church teaches which ever adds to it. It's simply anything the church teaches is an unfolding of the deposit of faith. 
Okay? Now, is everything made explicit in the deposit of faith? By the death of the last apostle, who is who? Who's the last, last apostle? John. Okay? By the death of the last apostle, who died when? About, about 100. Okay? Is everything explicit? No. Okay? There's many things that are implied. As you can imagine spending years with our Lord, years under the direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit. How do you communicate that in human terms explicitly? There's so much to give. There's so much to say. And so some things are left implied. They're very much there. But they're implicit in form. Okay? What is an example of that? The perpetual virginity of Mary. All right, the perpetual virginity of Mary, or the assumption. The assumption. Okay, the assumption is a topic we've uh, had recently. All right, the, the assumption is not something invented by the church later on. In what year? What year? What year was it proclaimed? 1955. 1950, yes, I hope. 55. I'm being recorded. 55. Anyways, 955. Um, by Pius XII. Okay, some people make the mistake that when the church proclaims something, therefore the church is inventing something, and nothing could be farther from the truth. I have an example for you from a dear uh, Protestant brother that you may have heard of before, Jack Chick. <laughs> Central is their Virgin Mary who has been elevated by papal decree, right, in 1955, by papal decree to the status of a goddess. Nothing in the Bible suggests that the biblical Mary is anything else but a devout, ordinary Jewish woman. Rome has transformed her into a sinless celestial being. This is sheer blasphemy, making her equal with Jesus in the minds of hundreds of millions of Roman Catholics around the world. In fact, Jesus has been reduced to a wheat wafer in the Eucharist. And the a wheat wafer. And the practical focus of their worship is now upon Mary, Queen of Heaven, rather than on Jesus as King and Savior. I love it. It's fantastic. <laughs> um, what's that? It's pretty heavy. That's pretty heavy stuff. How many times have you ever heard that, that quote before? Has anybody ever heard that quote before? Guys, I used this in my column two weeks ago in your bulletin. Read my bulletin column, please. Let me tell you, I spent hours and getting a lot more for my bulletin column than ever been able to get me here. Look, it is not uncommon for people to look at the Catholic Church, see the Vatican, see the Pope hanging out of his Vatican apartment window giving blessings to, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of right around Pope and beyond saying to themselves, I don't see a Pope mobile in the Bible. This church that you're showing me looks very different than what I see in the scriptures. And so, therefore, it must not be the same church. Okay, have you ever heard that before? Yes. But, I mean, you can imagine. Yes. You can imagine. Pendulum swings the other way, too. You know, we change everything, and, you know, it never was the same as blah, 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 blah. Not sure, but okay. All right. Um, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Turn your Bibles to John chapter 14, because Mr. Jackson has a problem. John chapter 14. He puts down Mary. He puts down Jesus. Because Mary is his mother. John chapter 14, verse 25. Sorry, Lord, excuse me. 
Go ahead, Jennifer. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. The Counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in thy name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Okay. Either Jesus was a liar, he was wrong and didn't know what he was talking about, or he was right. And if he was right, which I think Mr. Jack Schick would agree with, and most of our Protestant brethren would agree with, then the Holy Spirit will lead the church which Christ has founded into all truth. He will reveal to them all things. He will recall everything to them so that they do not make an error. Okay? That's number one. Number two is that when Christ founded the church, did he found a great institution with all sorts of offices and build the Vatican himself? No. What did he do? What did he do? Turn to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew. Well, no, we're not going to Matthew chapter 13. Chapter 13. Verse 31. Oftentimes, when our Lord speaks of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, he's using that analogous to with the church. Okay? He's using, they're interchangeable. Okay? Another parable he put before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. Who's the man? Christ, right? And, and those who followed him. Which a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds. But when it has grown, it is the greatest of shrubs and becomes a tree. So that the birds of the air come and make their nests in its branches. Okay? Our Lord did not found a full-blown, full-fledged, four-alarm Catholic church the way we see it today in all its glory and all that, with its cardinals and everything, and liturgy and whatnot. But he planned on that seed which he planted to grow into a beautiful tree. Does a seed look like the tree it produces? No. No. Is everything there implicitly? Yes. Yes. Okay. Turn to the uh, letter to the Ephesians, Epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 4. And we'll leave this be behind us. Ephesians. Ephesians. E-P-H. Ephesians chapter 4. This is one of my favorite uh, texts of St. Paul. By the way, in, in September, later September, we're going to start Acts of the Apostles, a Bible study on Acts of the Apostles. And then we're going to finish Acts of the Apostles and we're going to start the Epistles of St. Paul which will bring us up through Christmas. Okay, because you can't do one without the other. Acts and St. Paul are kind of, you know, Acts is kind of the seedbed for St. Paul. What chapter? Chapter 4. Verse 4. There is one body and one spirit. And what's, for St. Paul, we write, what's... What's the body he's speaking of? The body of the church. Christ. The body of Christ, which is the church. Okay. Chapter four, verse four. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, who is above all and through all and in all. But but grace was given to each of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it is said, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is he who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And his gifts, this is where our, our topic gets in here, and his gifts were that some should be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the equipment of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until we all attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, 
to mature uh, manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be tossed, be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the cunning of men, by their craftiness or deceitful wiles. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by every joint with which it is supplied, when each part is working properly, makes bodily growth and upbuilds itself in love. Notice, verse 12. For the equipment of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. St. Paul understands that who he's speaking to, his followers, are like children. He uses that image all the time, right? Feeding them with milk instead of with meat, like a baby. The church which St. Paul knew was a church in growth. It was a church that was still an infant church. Okay? That infant church had the promise of Jesus Christ, that he would send the Holy Spirit, who would make them remember all that he had taught them, and would not leave them. Further, our Lord himself promised to be with us forever, that he would not leave us. Either Christ's promise is not fulfilled, okay, which makes him either wrong or right, or it is, okay, and we believe it is. And so we see in with that deposit of faith initially given to the apostles, a further you might development is actually a, a bad word, an unfolding in our understanding what was implicit in the early church. Okay? The assumption of Mary is one of those things. Is it found in the teachings of the early church? Yeah, here and there. It's not all over the place. Okay, is it in scripture? Yeah, you can find it in a few verses here and there, some references, possibility in the book of Revelation. Is it explicit? Not really. Okay? Is it consistently taught through the history of the church? Yes. Okay? It's not a major doctrine of the early church. Okay? When it was taught... Here and there by different fathers of the church, by different saints, did people go up in arms and call them a heretic? No. Okay, it was accepted. And so similar, so all of these teachings which are made explicit later on by papal decree, usually done because there's some sort of an attack of somebody against the faith of a heretic, claiming something that's not actually Catholic, okay, against the faith, then the church makes it explicit. All right. We made a further distinction at the end last time about um, tradition versus tradition. Okay? This oral tradition, which is part of the deposit of faith, big T tradition, capital T tradition, and small T tradition. Okay? And what was the distinction we made there? I just wanted to conclude that little thing because I thought we left it kind of what was the what's the difference between capital T tradition and small T tradition? Well, the assumption is small T. No, no. The assumption is part of the deposit of faith. It's declared to be that by Pius the Twelfth. Okay, so his declaration simply says, "Yes, indeed, this is the deposit of faith. You must believe it." Okay. What's that? Yes, this is a big T is the revelation itself. What's a small T? Tradition. What's that? Celebration of the Mass. Yeah, celebration of the Mass, our, our practice of fasting, rules about fasting. What else? Belief in Fatima. What's that? Belief in Fatima. Not really. Not really. Okay, what's that? That's private, private revelation. We talked about that. Public versus private revelation last time. Turn to Catechism to paragraph um, 83. Paragraph 83. Go ahead, Amy. The tradition here in question comes from the apostles and hands on what they received from Jesus' teaching and example and what they learned from the Holy Spirit. Okay, now he's talking about capital T tradition. They're part of the deposit of faith. Go ahead. The first generation of Christians did not yet have a written 
In the light of tradition, these traditions can be retained, modified, or even abandoned under the guidance of the church's magisterium. Okay, read me that last sentence again. These are the particular forms adapted in different places and times in which the great tradition is expressed. In the light of tradition, these traditions can be retained, modified, or even abandoned under the guidance of the church's magisterium. Okay, now I said one one thing last time about that point is that what happens, well, what did, what did the catechism just say that this small t tradition is in the service of? Big T tradition. It is to show it forth, to explain it more fully. Okay? We want to be very careful reading that last sentence in some sense out of context of the rest of the catechism. Okay? When we change small t traditions, the way we say the mass, rules about fasting, things like that, what do we call into question? That which they signify. That which they signify, okay? And so the church, as we looked at it last time in paragraph 1125, I believe it was, we don't have to look at it now. It says, even these small t traditions in paragraph 1125, they're talking about the liturgy. Saying, the liturgy itself, though it can be changed here and there, alterations made to it, always it must be in view of more perfectly expressing capital T tradition. It can never be done arbitrarily, because when you change this, suddenly you call this into question. And if this is changed arbitrarily, or if the change doesn't better express the reality of of the revelation itself, then suddenly people begin to call into question whether we still believe that thing or not. Okay? And that thing they're talking about is the unchanging revelation of God. And therefore, we have to be extremely careful when we alter small t traditions. Okay? In our in our thing on the our series on the motu proprio, we talked about that quite a bit. Okay? Um, any questions? No. Paragraph 85. Paragraph 85. Let's read 85 and 86. The task of being an authentic presentation of the Word of God, whether in its written form or in the form of tradition, has been entrusted to the living, teaching office of the church alone. Its authority in this matter is exercised in the name of Jesus. This means that the task of interpretation has been entrusted to the bishops in communion with the successor of Peter, the Bishop of Rome. Yet, this magisterium is not superior to the word of God, but is its servant. It teaches only what has been handed on to it. At the divine plan and with the help of the Holy Spirit, it listens to this devotedly, guards it with dedication, and expounds it faithfully. All that it proposes for belief as being divinely revealed is drawn from this single deposit of faith. Okay, so it does not invent, it does not make up the assumption, it simply takes what it receives and makes it explicit for the faithful of the age in which it's speaking. That phrase here, that, that term used in there, magisterium, we talked about that before. It is the official teaching voice of the church. That teaching voice of the church, which is the mouth of God, okay, making explicit or handing on that which was received, which, which was revealed. Okay? Never revealing something new, but simply handing on that which was revealed. Okay? I, sometimes it's good to have a little Catholic dictionary when you have a term because I know what that is, but I want a little bit more out of it. Okay, and the Atwater Catholic Dictionary is a great one for that. Um, I think there's a new Atwater. Whenever there's a new something, get the old one. <laughs> um, all right, this is what it says on Magisterium. The church's divinely appointed authority to teach the truths of religion. Going therefore, teach ye all nations, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Okay, so Christ gives the apostles that command. Go teach all nations. And that is handed on through the succession of the apostles. Okay, apostolic succession. This teaching is infallible. And behold, I am with you all days, even to the consummation of the world. The solemn magisterium. Now, we're going to make a distinction here. 
okay? The solemn magisterium, so oh, my handwriting's terrible, sorry. The solemn magisterium is that which is exercised only rarely by formal and authentic definitions of councils or popes. Its matter comprises dogmatic definitions of ecumenical councils or of the Pope's teaching ex cathedra or ex cathedra. What does that mean? From the chair. From the chair. It doesn't mean that the Pope goes and gets on the chair up there on the wall and St. Peter's chair been there. Okay? He teaches, it's a physician, he teaches in this state, intentionally teaching from the chair of Peter, showing his apostolic succession. Okay? Uh, teaching ex, ex cathedra or of particular councils. If their decrees are universally accepted or approved in solemn form by the Pope. Also, creeds and professions of faith put forward or solemnly approved by Pope, by, uh, by Pope or ecumenical council. The ordinary magisterium. I'm going to talk a lot about this in the next few minutes. The ordinary magisterium is continually exercised by the church, especially in her universal practices connected with faith and morals, in the unanimous consent of the fathers and theologians, in decisions of Roman congregations concerning faith and morals, in, in the common sense of the faithful, and various historical documents in which the faith is declared. All these are founts of a teaching which is a which it, which as a whole is infallible. They have to be studied separately to determine how far and in what condition each of them is an infallible source of truth. Unfortunately, most of the time, when we're talking about infallible declarations of the church, we get this picture of the Pope dressed in his get-up, sitting on the throne, throwing down the hammer and saying, this is divinely revealed by my mouth, and nothing could be further from the truth. That is the solemn or extraordinary use of this gift which is granted ordinarily to the church. In the ordinary magisterium of the church, the whole church together, the faithful included, that's me and you, speak infallibly on faith and morals when we're speaking together as a body. I will. I will. In a sense. Okay, so before you go on, can yes. you just make the distinction again? So you have the magisterium versus the solemn magisterium. Yes. And the, underneath the solemn magisterium, it's ecumenical councils, what they decree, approved by the Pope, the Pope ex cathedra, and then creeds, two other things, approved by the council. Are you writing these down? <laughs> I'm trying you to remember. Okay, all right, fine, okay. Well, I don't know, you can look at it later, but yeah, I mean, it's all those things. They're, they're unusual occurrences. Okay, okay? and on faith and morals. So an ecumenical council like Vatican II can declare something that doesn't have to do with faith and morals, and it's not speaking infallibly. Okay? As many have said, the, the Second Vatican Council was not a dogmatic council. It was not speaking infallibly on anything. Okay? Now that's can get into a debate with theologians, but uh, ecumenical councils can speak about all sorts of things and never intend to define anything. Okay? How do we know what's the difference? Like, ah, the last sentence. They have to be studied separately to determine how far and in what conditions each of them is an infallible source of truth. So if you want to get into that, I mean, I think it's in heavy duty laying out what things have to be there, okay, what determines faith and morals, and the best thing to do is talk to Dr. Marshner. Oh, there he goes again. All right. Okay. I guess it's still not clear that this teaching. Well, you've got all sorts of irregular things, or, uh, 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 you know. of ecumenical councils, or of popes teaching ex cathedra, or particular councils, if their decrees are universally accepted or approved in solemn form by the pope. Also, creeds, what are those? Yeah, what are those? Particular councils? Which are? Oh, a particular council is a local council. Like the United States bishops could get together and have a, a synod. They have a local council. 
Okay, in the early church, it happened all the time. Yeah. You had local councils because people weren't, you know, going over the Alps to get to councils. You did what you could do right there. You got together and said, "Well, what do we all believe about this issue that's now a debate?" It's like a meeting that they're going to have all the bishops this month or something. No, it's different than that. Okay. This is a this is a, this is a, a more solemn. You see, it, it happens even today sometimes where you have a local synod. Okay, and then they get together, they decree something, but then notice what it says about that local council. It says, if their decrees are universally accepted or approved in solemn form by the Pope. Okay, so you can't just declare something and boom, everybody, okay? But if the Pope signs off, I mean, what? Yeah, the Pope, okay, the Pope, yeah, if he approves it, yeah. Yes, but I want to go on, because no, notice what we're doing? We're focusing on extraordinary use, because everybody wants to know about this extraordinary use. The problem is, we don't know the ordinary use, and so we don't understand the extraordinary use. All right, so let's look at the ordinary use here. The ordinary magisterium is continually exercised by the church, especially in our universal practices connected with faith and morals. In, okay, I'll give you an example of that. It's universal practices connected with faith and morals. What's a universal practice connected with faith and morals? It's prayer life. It's what? It's prayer life. Lex serandi, lex credendi. You can faithfully follow, as revealed by God, the things which the liturgy speaks of. Because they themselves tell you what we believe. Okay? Lex serandi, lex credendi. What we believe, what we pray, we believe. So you find it in a prayer. That's what we believe, okay? Um, universal consent of the Father, and so on and so on, faith and morals, and common sense. Oh, and in the common sense of the faithful, and various historical documents, the common sense of the faithful, okay? That is, it's a technical term, we don't have to get into it, but it's the, basically, it's the faith of the, of the universal church together. What we have believed, what we have received, even though, I mean, in a sense, even though it hasn't been defined um, by the Holy Father, we still can hold something infallibly. The early church believed that Christ was God, and yet the Council of Nicaea didn't come to 325 to declare that as as the part of the deposit of faith. So, like, with the assumption it was celebrated since 529 or something like that, right? Fine, good. I think that's the date. Okay. Hold that, because we're going to come back to that. Turn your catechism to uh, paragraph 91. Paragraph 91 and 92, Annie. All the faithful share an understanding and handing on the real truth. They have received the anointing of the Holy Spirit, who instructs them and guides them in the all truth. The whole body of the faithful cannot err in matters of belief. This characteristic is shown in the of faith, senses today, on the part of the whole people, when from the visions to the last of the faithful, they manifest the universal consent in matters of faith and morals. Okay, that's kind of heavy duty. I mean, you guys need this. We're going to finally get to it after three classes. Can you believe it? Who doesn't have one? I don't have that many, only made 25. Yeah. You know, if you're sitting next to somebody, maybe you can share it. I only got about five more there. Or, we got an extra. You may need an extra. Two extras to the back. All right. This is a selection, only a very small part of the Declaration of Pius XII on the Assumption. And it's, it's helpful for us. We might even have to conclude with this. I don't know. It's a long quote. That's why I printed it off for you. But I want you to get a sense of when the Holy Father declares something to be held, he's not making it up. Okay? It's something which has been handed up. I didn't get the whole text here, but he goes on. This is only a small part on this sense of the faithful, on the common sense of the faithful, and how important that is. But he also showed, he also says in this document, this is something held by the, by the fathers of the church. It's been held historically through the church, and now I'm declaring it, not because I'm making something up, but I'm simply giving voice to the faith which has always been there. Okay? All right. Oh. Who wants to read this song? Okay. Maria, okay, got a nice man's voice. So you get it. Yeah. Yes. What's that? 
Certainly, there's teaching authority in the church, not by merely human effort, but under the protection of the spirit of truth, and therefore absolutely without error, carries out the commission entrusted to it, that of preserving revealed truth, pure and entire throughout every age, in such a way that it presents them undefiled, adding nothing to them and taking nothing away from them. Whereas the Vatican Council teaches, the Holy Spirit was not promised to the successors of Peter in such a way that by his revelation they might manifest new God, but so that by his assistance they may guard as sacred and might faithfully propose the revelation delivered through the apostles or the deposit of faith. And notice that Saint, that's, again, that's St. Paul coming out. Hold fast to this which I have handed on to you. Do not mess with it. Hold fast to it. And he's saying, that's what we're doing here. We're not adding anything new. Okay, go ahead. Thus, from the universal agreement of the church's ordinary teaching authority, we have asserted and firm proof, demonstrating that the Blessed Virgin Mary's bodily assumption into heaven, which surely no faculty of the human mind could know by its own natural powers, as far as the heavenly glorification of the virginal body of the loving mother of God is concerned, is a truth that has been revealed by God and consequently something that must be firmly and faithfully believed by all by all children of the church. For as the Vatican Council asserts, all those things are to be believed by the divine and Catholic faith which are contained in the word of God or in tradition, and which are proposed by the church, either in solemn judgment or in its ordinary and universal teaching office as divinely revealed truths which must be believed. Okay. You guys see how what he's doing is he's simply giving voice to that which the body of Christ has been has held in its heart. Okay, you see how much care he's taking in that. Okay, before I do anything, I need to know that this is a universal belief of the church. So that I don't go ahead and say something which is not true, which is not infallible. Okay? His infallibility, his voice in the solemn magisterium is based upon that which has been in the heart of the church from the beginning. Okay? Now why is it that that which the church has held in its heart from the beginning is infallible? Why is it? We just spoke about the body of Christ being knit together in Ephesians chapter 4. Okay? Being knit together and connected with its head, growing into full maturity, always being identified with its head, who is who? Christ. Who is Christ? Okay? The church is infallible because the church is the body of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is God and therefore infallible. That which the church holds in its heart, that which we hold in our heart, is the truth which God holds in His heart because His heart is located in the body of Christ, the Catholic Church. Okay? When we think about about uh, solemn declarations of the Holy Father and all of that stuff. It's not the magical thing that everybody, you know, put the wand on and he sets, sits ex cathedral on his throne just right with his leg crossing this way and this thing. Not at all. It's simply that he's opening his mouth for human beings to hear so that Christ can speak through him, declaring what has always been true in the heart of the church. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. I had said to you in the beginning of this series, I've been repeated a number of times, the whole game of the Catholic faith, the whole the way to understand every aspect of the Catholic faith is that God desires to share his life with us. He really desires to share his life with us, which means that everything he has, he wants us to have. If anybody has a problem with the church speaking infallibly, they have a problem either with God's love for his people or with God speaking infallibly. If they believe God loves his people and can give whatever he wants to them, according to the scriptures, he's given him very, his very self to make us sharers in the divine nature. So that now we can look at Christians and see Christ God incarnate before us. 
We can look at the church as a whole and see Christ walking on earth. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. He is alive and present with us, not just in the tabernacle. That is our source. That is our point of union with him. But he's alive and walking among us in each one of us. To the point where we can say that the, that the faithful speak without error. They speak what God speaks. Because they're partakers in the divine nature. Okay? Yes? Questions? Yes. I think it's important to note that we, uh, as church, are speaking and believing as church when we are doing so in union with the apostolic tradition and with the hierarchy that God has put in place. Yes. Unlike certain groups that say yeah. we are church, right, but stand aside from and do their own thing. Exactly. It's a, it's a good point. I'll come at it the other way and say that the church never speaks that which the faithful do not hold. It's two ways of looking at it, right? And the faithful cannot speak without their mouthpiece, which is the teaching authority of the church which Christ has granted it. Okay, go out and teach all nations. So they're, they're interdependent, okay? The church can also, or the faithful can hold all sorts of things in their heart and never be able to say a darn thing without the church, without the hierarchy saying it. Okay, say it with authority. Exactly, exactly. Infallibly, infallibly, right? And so the whole body of Christ is interdependent upon itself. Okay? Um, yes? Did the Orthodox reject one of these doctrines? No. No. The Orthodox call the assumption the dormition. They have a different name for it. Lex serrande, lex credendi. You go look at their prayers, you know what they believe. I know because I just attended the Feast of the Assumption at my parish. We have the same prayers as the Orthodox do. Okay? And so. How is it called? What's that? The dormition. Dormition, yeah. And a tomb is set up in the middle of the church, and it's empty during the whole liturgy. Okay? And so, yeah, oftentimes between the Orthodox and the Catholics, the faith is the same, and yet the way of expressing it is different, and so we end up getting in all sorts of fights because we use different language, unfortunately. Okay? If we could just get together and get our language back together, we wouldn't really have a problem. Okay? So... Um, well, look, we're, we're out of time, but keep that in your mind. You remember, there's a, there's a I, I want to turn to it, we don't have time. In an epistle of St. Paul where he talks about, he says, one is a hand, one is a foot, one is an eye, one is a, you remember that, okay? He's talking about the body of Christ, and he talks at the end of it, he says, some of you are prophets and some are apostles, some are teachers and some are this. That we are part of the body of Christ. Each one of us is an outreach of Christ to the world. A finger of Christ working in the world. And in Ephesians chapter 4 he says, that's why all of us have to work together for the building up of the body of Christ. Every single one of us is an essential part. And when we fail in our part, we fail the body of, the, of Christ. And it is hurt by it. It struggles with our not being fulfilling our part. Okay? So, to conclude and conclude and conclude, <laughs> I just said to end before. You know, even coming here, invite your friends, talk to people. Our Lord sent us out in the world to save the world for Him. It is The world is dependent upon us to bring Christ to it. Jesus isn't going to come a second time until the world's ready, and He's waiting for us to get our act together. Okay? And so, even you know, here, when was the last time we invited somebody to church? Walked up to a neighbor and said, why don't you come to church with me? You know? Worked on a conversation which led to a conversation about the faith. I was in the dentist, you know, the other day with the lady, the thing kind of asked her, what religion are you? And, uh, you know, you've got to do that. You've got to go out there. And if you don't, you're shy, take a stack of flyers or whatever things about our church and go put them at places. Leave them there in the laundry mat or the, at the hardware store, whatever. 
Okay, we've got to spread the message of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, the food festival is a great opportunity to do that because it's not an overtly religious. You can say, let's go check out the Middle Eastern food festival, you know, and then come and bring along the church to them and we'll baptize them. All right, let's conclude. Let's conclude in prayer. Yeah, there's the signing of the letter, and then there's one other thing. Oh, we have we have our last catechism thing next week. Okay, we're going to talk about faith. What is it? What next is Tuesday. Tuesday. Next Tuesday. Nothing this Thursday. Okay, because we finished the Trinity Mass series. You know, and if Ozzie's Ophelia has finished his song theme, glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit. And Our Lady is soon into heaven. Pray for us. And we find this Ophelia's finished his song theme. Amen.